You're listening to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry developers. Buckle down and ready up. We're serving JavaScript, web design, soft skills, backend development, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Vincent Tang and Herman Gamboa. Order up. Welcome to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry web developers. My name is Vincent, and with me today is German. And for today's topic, we are going to be talking about CSS. What is it? We're going to go through a crash course on all the things you know as a, as a web developer or even as a front-end developer. So CSS, is it stands for Cascading Style Sheets. If you were to go on a website on your computer, say, let's say it's facebook.com, reddit.com, whatever, your computer will make a request to a server, and that server will send HTML, CSS, and JavaScript back to you. And... The HTML kind of showcases like all the content on the page, but if you don't have any styles on that page, it'll just look like a really, really boring looking black and white website with nothing going on. So what styles gives you the power on that page is to, to style different elements on there, whether it's like the footer, the header, navigation bar, whatever. And you have different colors, different padding, different margins to give you a better and richer user experience on the page that's kind of unique to that website. And then uh, JavaScript, obviously, for any interaction effects. So CSS is for, again, applying those styles on the page. So it's an important concept to understand when you're working as a front-end developer or even a full-stack developer because that user experience might change on a mobile device, might change on a desktop device, and you have to understand different concepts related to media queries, to specificity rules, to what things you could do when you have a specific design layout problem. So for this topic, we're going to be talking about more, instead of our traditional format, where me and German both talk about you know the topic together, their, their co-share experience. Uh, German's going to today pretend to be more of like a, you know, fresh out of boot camp, learning CSS for the first time, asking questions to me about different CSS questions he has, and then we're going to go from there. So German, you want to take it from here? Definitely, although I will not be pretending, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> I'm mostly a back-end developer. Yeah, I know some CSS, just enough to get by. <laughs> okay, cool. I guess my first question is, how do you even go about selecting stuff on the uh, on the on the structure on the HTML? Right? Do I go ahead and directly just kind of like write it on the on the tag itself, or how do I go about selecting something? So there's a there's a couple of different ways of doing this. There's actually three different ways. Let's just say we just have an HTML page and just CSS, just nothing else. If you're just doing something really simple like that, you could have inline CSS which is like right before your body elements, which is part of the browser object model, or actually the document object model as well. Inside of like your head tag, you can write CSS inline, where you say like, hey, you know, style, close open tag, and then you write body, and then you write bracket, and then like color red bracket, and then closing style tag at the very top of your like HTML head. That's one way of doing it. That's not a very common way of doing it though, but you'll see it a lot of times in email templates. This email templates is a whole another issue entirely when you're starting to install that. You can do inline uh, CSS where you have your HTML tags themselves. So you might have like a paragraph tag and then you write an inline style. It's been a while since I've written, written an inline style, but you would write it inside of the that paragraph tag itself. So everything is kind of like co-located in the same spot. And then the last, but also the most common way is probably creating a separate style sheet. So with an HTML file, it will just be .html and then you'll reference a .css file that's living in the same folder, essentially. It could be in a different folder. It just depends how you set it up, but that's one way of doing it. So when you do it this way, you'll generally have a class for your elements. So for instance, 
that paragraph tag, like open bracket P class is equal to text description, you know, closing bracket, and then you write some text. And then you can target that with a CSS selector on the CSS side that says like dot text description, open bracket, close bracket, color red. So it's kind of hard to explain over audio, but that's the best way to describe it. So any other follow-up questions? Cool. So if we got, if we can go ahead and select stuff like that. So is there, is there, you mentioned class selectors. Is there any other way to select stuff? Can I select stuff just by like, hey, I want all paragraphs or hey, I want all H1s? or which is header tags? So there's two ways of selecting things, or, or generally there's three types of selectors. There are selectors that are part of the, the HTML spec itself. So kind of as part of like the Worldwide Consortium W3C, they have like standards that they have in terms of which HTML elements you should use for different parts of the page. For instance, if you're at the top of the page, you should use a header, a header elements. If you're in the middle, you should probably use a section elements. If it's something that's off to the side, maybe, wait, let's say if it's a blog and you're looking at like the tag section of the blog, that would be called a side. There's also the footer for stuff that goes to the bottom. So those elements are all part of the HTML spec and they actually have their own CSS properties assigned to them by default. Sometimes it's different display properties. For instance, if you do a span tag, that is by default an inline element, meaning it doesn't take up the entire width of the entire area that's located in. Whereas if you use a div, it's going to be a display block, which takes up the entire element. So you have to consider those things. So in that regard, there are HTML, that's that's like the HTML elements they can target by default, but then you can also add classes as well, which is like what I was saying earlier. You have the open bracket P and then class is equal to text dash description. And that's a custom class that you create. And that gives you a little more flexibility in terms of like what you want to target and what you don't want to target. And then the last thing you can use is IDs, which generally should be avoided because it adds CSS tech depth to your application. You should avoid it whenever you can. That goes into a whole different topic where something called CSS specificity rules, where if you have two classes or two, an ID and a class that are both competing against each other for selling the same part of the page, these, the ID will have priority preference over the class. So just to reiterate, you have HTML elements, classes you can add, and then IDs. Ooh, so you mentioned something pretty interesting there. So, and I guess it's the part that gets most people when they're learning CSS is the cascading aspect of it, right? So it's not just, hey, I'm writing this and selecting this. And you kind of brought it up a little bit, it's specificity. So how do I know how specific to be or how do I know the rule? Like what's going to be more specific? How do I know if a class is more specific or if an ID is more specific? Is there any like way to know that ahead of time or do I have to write my code first and then hope for the best? So what you generally want to do is just make everything by default as unspecific as possible. And the reason for this is if you leave it as unspecific as possible, that means when you have a a layout thing that you have to modify down the road, you can always override classes that you have written elsewhere, essentially. So for instance, you might have you might have like a bunch of paragraph tags and they both they all use the thing called text-description. But then you might want to also create another class called like font weight bold, which makes the font weight, the, the weight of the, of the text bold, right? And that might have priority preference if the text description already has a bold font already. So what you do is on your, cast, on your, on your CSS file, there is some, some specific rules when it comes to specificity in which things get overrided over others. Probably one of the most important rules you have to remember offhand is things that are lower down the page in the CSS file have higher precedence than things above the page. 
So if I were to write two classes in that whole CSS file, and they, they're both just regular classes that are on the same element, the class below would have precedence over the class above it. So we'll have priority over the class above it. So that's one important rule to memorize. IDs always have higher priority in general. So that's why they should be avoided whenever you can, because that makes figuring out where things are being applied correctly much more difficult. I don't actually remember all the specific rules for IDs. That's why I generally avoid it. If you're doing what's called nested selectors or, or, or selectors with, with, within like other selectors. So let's say you're saying like within this div element, div and then space dot text description, uh, apply these styles. If you did that and then you had another class called just text description, the one that's like more specific will have higher precedence. That makes sense. It makes sense. There's different rules, but the general, the most important general rule of thumb is the things that occur last on the page are the most are generally higher priority than things above it. But there are certain conditions that will override that. So one of the most common things that you'll see in an application, if you're working in something like WordPress, you might be targeting like ID selectors and and, and things that already exist on the page and there'll be styles on the page and you're just writing styles on top of it. You might use something called an important tag, which is like hash bank, like the exclamation mark important. And that generally takes precedence over everything else. But you should use it very minimally because it, cannot be overridden unless you have something below it um, with a different class that overrides that. So those are some of the rules that you have to be aware of. So yes, from what I see a lot of CSS, especially now that you brought it up WordPress and stuff like that. So in my experience, a lot of times when I'm writing CSS, I've already have, I've already been given a, like a preset structure for what I'm writing for. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing CSS, should I, what should I consider first? Should I consider my the structure of my document first, or should I just Work on work both of them in tandem, so I can go ahead and maybe delete it or change up the divs and something like that, and then write my CSS. Or what order do you normally work in? And I guess that's one of those things that's going to depend on the situation. But yeah, yeah. What's your preference? It depends on every person. What I've seen most developers and what I do myself is when we're trying to design a website or design a layout. Usually, we'll have someone like do a sketch mockup or a Figma mockup, which is like a tool for doing user experience, like. It's like mm -hmm. Photoshop almost, just specifically for the web. And they'll mock it up and we'll have an idea of like what it should look like. If not that, we'll just get like example sites to look at as well. And then we'll figure out like, or we may draw it on pen and paper and see like what the, where like content's going to be. So generally speaking, I usually go for very minimalistic styles as well as just laying out the HTML in a way that if I read the HTML, it would just make intuitive sense and in what the style should be. So like you want to write as little HTML as possible to get the result that you want. If that makes sense. You shouldn't write more HTML than needed. And the HTML should be semantic based on what you're trying to do. So you should have section tags. You know, if you're making like a blog website and you're trying to separate different parts of the blog, right? If you're using like on the blog, if you're using like a tag section, that should be an aside element, right? So you, you consider like the HTML semantics first because that's really important for SEO standards for Google to understand mm -hmm. what your page is supposed to do or what where the content's at. Then write the CSS to target those styles. And I usually just like write really, really simple styles starting off. I'll just put like background color pink, uh, text red, just so I know like where what I'm looking at and understanding like the box model structure, which we'll talk about, you know, in a bit. But I'll, I'll put very like jarring styles on the page that make, absolutely no sense at all in the very beginning just so i can get a conceptual idea of like where stuff is being laid out on the page then i'll write the javascript if it's like react or Vue or angular 
I'll start writing the logic against like those middle files. And then after that, I'll actually go back and do the styles again and wrap everything up. So like, like HTML, minimal CSS, then I'll do all the JavaScript. Then I'll go back to CSS. I'll just kind of like go in tandem. Cool. So yeah, that's what I was wondering. Uh, Cause it seems like a lot of CSS is not so much like writing the stuff. Cause pretty much things are straightforward, right? If you want your text to be center, you do a text align center property on whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it looks what it seems to me. It's organization. So, you know, like different styles that I can actually organize my CSS in. Cause I tend just to like write some like spaghetti, right? I'll be like, this is the, this is the menu box. This is the, uh, and then like, that's my, that's the class name. So it's basically what it is. And then it just kind of gets, weird as the project grows yeah yeah so there's definitely a lot of different methodologies for for doing styles i think the one that i use like uh so so this this like organization methodology has probably been around predominantly probably around like 2011 or even before that there's one called sma css which is like just name your classes in ways that just make sense to you so if this is like a header element, call it class of header elements or header item, right? And then you'll have a bunch of just randomly named classes based on how the developers prefer to name things. Another different way that I use more often and more frequently is something called Beam, which is block element modifier. This is kind of like a system where you try to have, and we'll get into this later, this is when you'll use something called SAS, which is like pre-compiled CSS. But it's just basically the most important principle here is you can nest selectors inside of selectors. So you could say like, you know, dot parent class, open parentheses, closing parentheses. And then with that, I can like write more classes that select other classes in there. So what I try to do is I try to eliminate, or I try to create islands of classes that are specifically targeting specific areas. And if I see like something that's like very reusable, I'll create utility classes instead, which is something like dot position dash absolute. And then, the CSS property inside there is literally position absolute. So that comes from a different methodology where it's more about reusability of utility styles. And you'll see that in CSS frameworks like Tailwinds or I forgot what the other ones are called, honestly, but Tailwinds is probably the most popular one. That's from Adam Rothinger, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, where like you have a bunch of utility classes that essentially have one or two lines and you append it to your HTML element itself. So just to reiterate, you could use something called block element modifier. You could use something that just, where you just name whatever classes you want using something called SMAS, or you can just use like utility styles for like one-liner utility styles that you just put a ton of classes in your elements. So those are the three major ways, I would say. There's definitely other ways, but those are the most predominant ways I've seen. Now, I guess it's whatever your team wants to go with, because I know a lot of people feel strongly, very strongly on how they how they decide to structure their styling. I've seen a lot of criticism against Tailwind. Everybody's screaming at it that it's just basically... Which one? Just uh, Tailwind. Oh, Tailwind. Yes, that it's basically just writing inline styles. Just go ahead and write inline styles instead of making utilities. But again, that's something that I know depends on the team you're working with and what the consensus is. It is. If you're working with like, for instance, like a a single page application like React, which we talked about in a previous episode, in case you want to look at more information, we'll put in the show notes. There's specific additional ways to style things that comes with building something in React. Um, So including everything we talked about to this point, that was just for HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But but if you're working with like a a React or Viewer Angular, React, there's actually like additional like four or five ways to style things on top of the things we talked about. So there's like CSS and JS, which is 
writing the CSS on the JavaScript side and having React render the new styles on the page during like the virtual DOM process. And I guess we won't really go into too much of that because that's just like that can get like really lengthy and like the ways you can specifically describe a specific framework like React or Vue. But yeah, the- yeah, and but they, yeah, and those might especially if you're like junior, like really really junior, that might sound scary. But as as long as you understand this basics about CSS. It's at the end of the day, whatever fancy magic you're using in your framework or whatever, it turns into what we're talking about, which is just plain old CSS. Yeah. So one thing you can do is, especially that's useful, is use the Chrome Dev Inspector tools. So, like, like at the end of the day, you'll just see HTML on the page. How that HTML gets on the page and those styles get on the page doesn't really matter. You'll still see it when you, if you're using Chrome or Firefox, you just hit, I believe it's Control Shift C. Or there's like a on the Chrome there's Control Shift I Control Shift I it's I think it's Control Shift C for me but it's it's, it's sometimes you could I think you use both of them actually but I can like see parts of the page and like see how the box model gets changed which I need to talk about the box model a bit but like you can see where the classes are sometimes like if you're using React you'll see like or or even Angular you'll see like kind of like its own like randomly generated classes and you're like what what is this stuff like what am i looking at but at the end of the day you can still see this the the properties off to the side and then in those properties on the side it'll actually show which ones what where the classes are and which ones got applied first like which properties have priority so the things at the very top of that page have highest priority and the things at the bottom of that page are the lowest priority so i guess do you want to talk about the box model which is something i'm unfamiliar with i just know it kind of contains some stuff and i know most of the time i'm setting my I'm setting some sort of like, I think it's box com- box sizing something in the beginning of my style sheets. And then I kind of don't know anything else about it. So the way I remember this, because I, I CSS just requires a lot of pure memorization, I would say. It's just a lot of rules. Like it's not particularly hard. And like some people take pride in not knowing any of it. Like I'm a backend developer. I don't need no CSS, but like. That's me. <laughs> but then, <laughs> like you really have to understand it at the end of the day, because like you kind of limit yourself to, to what you can build. So box model first too, and I actually have an acronym for it when I was first learning it. I use a mnemonic, which is like a specific phrase, like you just visually remember. And so how I memorize it is I said, curly Padme barf mechanically. So just picture that in your head from Star Wars, (laughs) like Padme from, I think, episode two and three. And it's like, just imagine her barfing mechanically. I don't know why that came up. I had a randomly generated thing when I was like clicking through and like, let me find some like things that would, that I can use for for explaining content, padding, border, and margin with those four letters. So I use that acronym to memorize that. So, so content uh, and then, and then, uh, and then padding, or sorry. Content, padding, border, and margins, right? So content refers to the width and height of your element, right? So you have an element on the page, right? Or like an HTML element and it occupies a certain width and a certain height. Things that affect the width would be like the display properties. So if you have like display block, that would occupy 100% of the width of where it's contained. If you have like display inline block or inline, that would occupy the space that it actually takes up. The height can vary depending on the content within it, whether you have images or text. And sometimes you don't know how big that text is. So you have properties that you can limit how big your container can be with min height or max height, as well as things for if the text overflows. Padding is within that box, within that box of like content, essentially. You have padding that goes around it, which is just like essentially what it implies is just padding. So you'll use it generally when you're trying to kind of like 
not have letters too close to the edge of the box because right the, the next step up from padding is border border is like the actual strokes that you see alongside the page right and mm-hmm. you don't want the stroke of that that's box like right next to your letters because then it gets really hard and jarring to read so generally speaking you'll always, you just generally have padding and then you and then in that padding you'll have some borders you might have just a, a box shadow but the concept is the same and then margin is if you want to offset everything entirely from the next element down so if you just want to get space between two pieces of content you'll just add margin so like content is like the width and height of the, of the thing of the content or the, of what you're working with, the, the content itself. Padding is like spacing between the borders, and then border is obviously a, a border, a stroke, whatever. And then margin is like everything else around it. So sweet. The most important rule that you have to know here is something called there. There's a specific property that is generally overridden when you're using box models or when you're dealing with box models. So if you use uh, like by default, the CSS property is called box sizing. I think default. Not mistaken, that that's like the default CSS property assigned to all the elements. One thing you'll see a lot is you'll see people use like a on their on their C, on their resets across the entire application itself. They'll put like a little asterisk sign, and then in the asterisk sign they'll put like an open parentheses and a closing parentheses, and they'll say box dash sizing colon border box. What that does is if you were to set a width and a height to that box, the content will shrink down if you have additional padding or larger borders. So like if you're setting like a width and a height to an element, it will actually, the border would be contained within it. Whereas if you didn't, the border will be outside of it. That makes sense. It makes sense. Otherwise your, your calculations can end up being off because you'll add up. If you say the width is the width is a hundred and then your padding and your margin do not add up to a hundred. It ends up overflowing. Yeah. In a weird sense. Mar- margins don't get affected by this, but basically box sizing border box changes how border is calculated within the box model. Like it's not part of the width and height of the entire thing with box sizing border box, but if you don't have it, it's, it's the outside. So the best way to kind of describe it, if you've ever worked in like design media, so I, I briefly did had used Adobe InDesign for three years and I did some Photoshop work. It's basically describing the difference between an inline stroke and an out outline stroke, right? Oh. So box sizing border box is inline strokes and the default is outline strokes. That makes sense. That's that's a difference. And that that's like a, that's like a really commonly asked like interview question on front end development. <laughs> so in case you guys want to I would I would fail that question so badly. <laughs> it's not that I'm proud to not to know that much CSS. It's just I guess I guess I'm kinda of like in a weird position as a dev because I'm like, I don't like CSS because I think I'm a bad designer, but the more I kind of work and kind of grow as a developer, I realize that CSS is not about being a good designer, which we're going to bring up the next topic, which is the funnest one for, I guess, which CSS is how do you position stuff in CSS? Because a lot of the times you're not so much going to be styling stuff and making it look pretty as much as you're going to be trying to put it in a specific page, in a specific part of the page, correct? Yeah, they're, they're actually putting stuff on the page used to be really, really hard. Back in the day, like this is like MySpace era or GeoCities era, if you remember that. Yeah, the typical, how do you center a diff? How do you center a diff? <laughs> and then you look it up and it's like, wait, there's like 10 different ways and none of them are exactly what I want. And this was before Flexbox came out, which was in, I think, 2011. That was when they had HTML5 come out, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, it happened all around the same time. HTML5 
I believe, brought the standards for Flexbox. It was still experimental before that. But back in the day, you would have to deal with something called floats, which floats were, were basically like, it was like the worst way of styling an application possible where you have to like put an element out of context and you have to clear the float and put it back into context. So there's like a video online kind of showing like how that looks like. And you have to actually think about your, your site in a 3D sense when you're doing floats and clearing floats and like how, understanding how that all works. You don't see it too much anymore unless you're like doing like putting like a, if you're writing like a text summary of like a blog article and you're putting an image and that image has text floating around it, that's when they use a float. Otherwise, you'll rarely see it in the wild on newer sites. So that was like... No, I was going to say that's what gave rise to a lot of like those CSS frameworks like Bootstrap. Because mm-hmm. Bootstrap was like the easiest way to do a grid or like everybody was trying to like get a CSS framework to do grids for them so they can do their layouts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because dealing with floats yourself is, it's fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so Bootstrap one, I believe, came out at the same time, and then up to Bootstrap three, it was still based on floats, which kind of like mm-hmm. mostly everything was based on a twelve-column system, based on how wide most monitors are, and twelve just is an easily dividable number for a lot of different applications. But then, like a Bootstrap four, they moved it entirely to Flexbox, which is kind of like the modern the modern way of doing styling. There's also grid and there's also position relative absolute, which I'll get in a second. But Flexbox is probably the one you should know very well offhand because it's one of the best ways of styling things and laying out elements on the page. So what it is, is you have a parent class and you'll write display flex. And there's just different display properties that are default to the different elements. So by default, if you use a div, it's a it's default to two display block. So if you use display flex, you're overriding it, which um, to get into a different topic, like HTML tables, when you're using like display table, that also cannot be at the same time, you'd be using display flex. That makes sense. So like there's, there's a little bit of rules when it comes to display properties. But anyways, flexbox, you write the parent wrapper, you write display flex, and then generally speaking, you'll write align items. And then you could say flex start, flex in, space between, and then space around, and then center, right? And then align items is, is aligning things vertically. If you justify content, that would go left to right, depending on whether your flex column is rows or it's columns, right? Which which that's kind of a whole different topic. But if you were, so the most common use case is like, I need to center this thing in a page, right? So what you'll do is like, okay, have this element take up 100% of the width, 100% of the height in the page. I don't know, 100% viewport height, 100% viewport width, right? And you say, display flex, align item center, just by content center. That's like the most common thing of just like, center this thing on the page and nothing else <laughs> yes. on the page. That's that's one you should memorize offhand before we would use like, let me adjust the padding on the margin on the margin top on the body a little bit or the element, the class right below it and, and like put some margin on top and then put some margin on bottom. But that's not the way you should be doing it. Though. Oh yeah. Mine used to be uh mine used to be have a wrapper that was that was margin auto and then you just set the height to fifty percent view height and then hope that it it wouldn't um it would work. But, but then you have to tinker with it. But the problem with that is it would be it's fifty percent height, but it's like the start of the the box of the content side. So if you have like a bunch of text, it would actually look like it's like sixty percent down. Because <laughs> like yes, I said, I said you have to tinker with it. That wasn't a very smart idea, but 
yeah, a lot of CSS as, as a developer, as a normal developer, that's not like a strictly like a UX designer. Mm-hmm. It's going to be involving moving things around, which is a lot easier now that we have Flexbox and we have CSS Grid, mm-hmm. which is the coolest thing ever. Um, and I just wanted to point this out because it's a lot of people get confused and they're like, oh, uh, do I use Grid or do I use Flexbox? You, you use both. You're going to end up using both, right? Uh, grid is usually more for like your page layout and then Flexbox is for those little like individual components. So, uh, at least that's how I used it in my experience. So the best, the most important rule, well, so, I mean, like I'll, I'll describe CSS Grid in a bit, but the most important rule you should take away from using CSS Grid and Flexbox is you should know that you're going to use CSS Grid from the beginning because you have to look at the elements on your page and you have to think about like how it's structured. So if you have, let's say, a box and then another box that's kind of like, like offset it diagonally a little bit from it to kind of give like a cool like effects on a layout of a page, you'll generally want to use something like a grid, which lets you, it's been a while since I've used grid actually. You'll, you'll essentially say like what position the grid your element's going to be at, what row and what column, like what's the start of the row, what's the end of the row. You have to define how big your grid is as well as how many FRs, which is like the, like how many fractions of space fractions. it takes. Yeah. And the nice part about grid is it reduces the need of using media queries. So media queries is we write specific breakpoints in an application of like here's at like you know 300 px between 300 px and like 600 px on a page have these these properties on the width and height of the element. With grid, everything just resizes naturally depending on how you specify it up front with the grid template rows and grid template columns. And there are actually a lot of good sites for like learning how grid works. I will put descriptions in the show notes. One is like one well, Frogger. Flexbox Froggy is good. And then there's CSS Grid Space, but it's within the same developers. It's like a little video game, but that's what I used originally when I was learning how to do CSS Grid. Um, I'll put in the show notes. I have to look it up. Yeah, no, like we still, for, I still forget which property does what. So it's like whenever I'm like, wait, to justify around, justify center. And I'll either look it up or I'll try it out and be like, oh crap, that's not the right one. And then I have to keep until I get to the right one. So it's not stuff I have memorized. I memorize Flexbox, but I don't memorize CSS Grid. I just recognize when I when it would come in handy and when it would be useful in a specific application. A lot of times, it, it really depends on what team you work with because a lot of people tend not to be nearly as familiar with it. But if I feel like based on the layout and the structure of the application, if it makes sense to go with Grid, I'll usually use a Grid. But I find myself normally reaching for Flexbox because everyone else on the team is familiar with Flexbox. So it just really depends what you're working on. If you're working on things that have to resize, like from a small box to a larger box, and it like kind of resizes based on like a grid layout, when you change it, like I guess a really famous example of this is one of like the art pieces and from Picasso. He's got like I forgot what the art piece is called, but it's got like a bunch of like squares and rectangles, and and it's like yellow, red, and blue, and it's used like as the main example for CSS grid. And when you resize the page, it just reflows naturally and like still aligns itself. You know what I'm talking about, German or no? I know what you're talking about. It starts it's with an M. Modella, Modella, Modello, uh, CSS Grid, I believe. I don't even remember what it's called. <laughs> I think I think it's called Modello. But Jen Simmons yes. wrote a lot of. Or Jen Simmons and Rachel Andrews, they're kind of like pioneering a lot of like the different aspects of CSS Grid, as well as like the examples that you use to find online and like how to structure things. There's also a new spec that is coming out. That I don't know if it's been out already. It's called Subgrids. So it's like a grid within a grid. I don't think that came out yet. I have to check. It's been a while since I checked it. You mentioned, um, what's her name? 
Jen Simmons, Rachel Andrews. Jen Simmons, yes. Okay. So they have a, just as a side note before I forget, because uh, I haven't watched it in a while, is they have a really cool YouTube channel called Layout Land. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. That was probably, yes. that was like the video that kind of explained to me when to use each of them, CSS Grid versus Flexbox, because all the tutorials didn't really kind of emphasize that. You just kind of had to like experiments like, oh, this is when it comes in handy. But generally, like speaking, macro components, large components on parts of the page, the CSS grid works really well if, if it's a use case. For smaller layouts on the page and things that need to remove responsively, Flexbox is always a good to go or good to go with right off the bat. So that's one way of thinking it. I mean, Flexbox can also be used for larger components on the page too, but Smaller components on the page, Flexbox is almost always going to be used in some way, shape, or form. Which, uh, speaking of which, like I had to write like an HTML table at one point, and this is something that kind of is interesting as well because like sometimes people get confused whether you have to use an HTML table or a flex table. Do you know the difference, German, at all, or no? No, actually, no. So, so with HTML tables, because I've had to do this a few times. So, the reason why people don't recommend using HTML tables nearly as much anymore. And they're still useful in different applications, like a financial app where there's like a million columns and you want to like have like a, a horizontal scroll bar so the user can scroll all the way all to the right. Tables are really good if you just want to throw out a table really quickly and just get it over with, right? So by default, it has a property called display table and then the components of the cells or the headers and the rows inside of it actually have display properties as well. So you're kind of limited in that if you want to use Flexbox within those cells, you have to write a wrapper class inside that cell, which I've had to do many times before. If you want something to reflow responsively from like a large desktop view all the way to a mobile view, and you want different parts of that table to kind of like move around, that makes sense. Like maybe there's like new columns that pop up when it gets smaller. Maybe like the tables change when they're getting shrunk down. The most common useful application you see of this is actually with e-commerce sites, because I've had to work on many of them. And most times when you're looking at like a list of like items on a page and then it gets shrunk down and it looks good on mobile as well, 90% of the time that's using a flex table, which is just literally, you're just writing a table in Flexbox. Whereas like a traditional table would be used for like a lot of like engineering specs on a page. Like we go to big MasterCard or something like that. Um, so that's like the difference. Oh, I get it. Right now, a lot of, a lot of what I work with is tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you work in... Merchant processing. Do they use a lot of tables there? Or they, do they use flex tables there? Or they use uh, we use more lists, lists and uh, pseudo tables that we kind of made ourselves. <laughs> well, because you use knowledge components there. Yeah, it's just whatever, uh, whatever or baseline component library gives us. Which I thought I've also been guilty in other apps where it's like it should probably be a table, and I end up making some sort of CSS grid abomination. Just <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> because HTML tables are weird. CSS, so um, CSS grid for tables, I don't think is a very good idea. <laughs> I think almost all the table libraries out there, like data tables that you see, are predominantly flex tables, if not mistaken. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, at least the ones I've used, like jQuery data tables, I believe was a flex table. It's kind of like the standard used in a lot of places. So originally, me and Vincent have a giant list of things that we want to cover in one topic. Mm-hmm. But every time we, we're like right now, like at maybe like 30% of what CSS <laughs> stuff is. That was like a thrill of it. It's 30 minutes. It kind of gives a good crash course, right? We kind of covered how to like the different styles that ACSS can be written at, like different ways you write CSS, the selectors and how how they work. And the biggest thing, which is positioning. 
Oh, that's not the only I don't know. Positioning. This is a really important thing because, like, I had to work with someone recently on a different project, and we're building like this, like, WebGL, like Babylon JS, like video game of sorts online. It's kind of like an online event platform where, like, instead of like meeting in person, you're just meeting in virtual reality. And we have like UI components on top of it. We also have like a Twitch live stream section where you can like type in like whatever you want in the chat box and then it kind of like reflows upward. And I had to get a certain part of the page to like actually work on different mobile devices because like, and it gets kind of complicated when you're working on like things responsibly with CSS because for instance, you want to cater toward users that are using iPhone X, right? And that phone has a different aspect ratio. Like the width is like 375px by 812. And it's like, it's a super long phone, but super skinny phone. Then you have like your Pixel 3, which is what I use, which is like more of like a hamburger-ish type phone where it's like wider. It's a little bit more wider and less taller. And then you have phablets, which are like tablet hybrids with phones and then you have tablets and all this other stuff. So when you're styling things on the page, you want things to work responsibly. Uh, one important rule that you should understand is don't use position absolute and position relative if you don't have to. Always go with Flexbox or go with the CSS grid because position absolute and position relative is generally like a last resort thing that you want to use because when you do that, it changes your whole content reflowing structure. And if you don't know like how large your content's going to be because for whatever reason, there could be different dynamic text on the page, it's generally not a good, good idea to use. So that's one important rule to know. There's also another property that, that I tend to use a lot, and it tends to be a little bit heavy on performance on a page if you use it too often, but it's the calculation function on CSS, where you write like whatever the class name is, and then bracket, bracket, and then you write with, and then colon, calc, and then you write down like, say, 100 VW for like 100% of the view width minus like 50px, and then closing parentheses. That function is very useful to know if you have to calculate like how another component affects its sizing, that makes sense. So so that's another thing you should know. Um, the calculation function is definitely useful. There's also another property called CSS variables. Are you familiar with that, German? Yes, I was actually really, those are actually really cool because you can actually set up. So there's some styles that you are going to be kind of global to your app and you want to be able to configure in different spots, namely being colors and font sizes and like a yeah. font stack maybe. Uh, so CSS variables are pretty cool because you can set that up in one spot and then Reuse them across your whole style sheets. So that's See, actually, I knew that one. No, so actually, the real reason, and I didn't understand this at first, why CSS variables are so powerful. There's also like when you're talking about pre-compiled CSS, which is SAS, um, you can write variables too. But I'm talking about like literally like vanilla CSS variables on a page, like things that work straight with like an index.html and a CSS file. The reason why CSS variables are so powerful is because you can target them with JavaScript. And I learned that through David Kay's talk at one of the conferences. David Kay is like a local guy in Orlando that all he talks about state machines, which is all another can of worms. But anyways, he's like a CSS wizard. And there's a couple CSS wizards in Orlando, actually, now that I think about it. And the thing, the thing with CSS variables is if you're, for instance, wanting to add theme to the page or add themes to the page and the users like select their own colors and select their own fonts, or select their own color schema, you'll definitely want to look into CSS variables because that gives you a lot of flexibility in interacting with it on the JavaScript side. I actually haven't played with it too much personally, but this is what David said. <laughs> I just take it for, 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 
for word there. No, you're fine. You're right. And I, now that I remember, there's a website. I think it's Level Up Tuts or um, who is it that wrote it? That where you can actually select your own style, and then you can actually have custom themes for your um for for your view. There's a couple people that have that. So like, if you ever follow like Sean Wang, like the guy who wrote Learning in Public. Mm-hmm. He works for AWS on his blog. He's got like a little selector and you can like select the themes and color on his blog. And that is using CSS cool. variables. If you ever use like a color selector tool online and you're picking like, and you see like the different like the little pop-up menu and you see the different little thing that shows up and it shows you like what colors you can pick on like kind of like almost looks like a Photoshop tool where it's got like all the colors in one square box and it's just different things, gradients in there. That's using... CSS variables, generally speaking. But yeah, so that's also another thing to, to understand. Are you familiar with pseudo-selector, German? A little bit. As far as I know, they're used to maybe add some content in or stuff that is not related to the actual, that is not important to the document itself. So maybe like adding an icon or something that's not that doesn't need to be part of the document. Yeah, so pseudo-selectors, the, the things that you have to understand most about it is there are cases when you need to specifically apply styles to the page, but you don't want to apply styles to like the first element on like a list of paragraph tags, maybe because it's just like the header or whatever, or it's just like whatever HTML, sometimes you're given HTML that you have no control over, right? Like when I first was learning how to use CSS, I was actually writing like gaming wikis online for different like MMORPG games that I played back in the day. And I was also writing like styles that were injected onto a page via cross-script injection for like a note-taking app I was using. And because you don't have full control of the HTML, or maybe you might have full control of the HTML, you want to learn about different selectors. So there's this thing, and I'll put in the show notes, called 30 Selectors You Must Memorize from Envato Tuts, which is kind of a place that you can, it's like a place where you can buy like different themes and stuff for WordPress or whatnot. But some of the important ones are if you have like like uh, pseudo selectors for like the before and after pseudo selector. Are you familiar with those? Yes. Yeah. So that's a really common one to know when you write, for instance, like you're trying to make like a, a box show up on the page and you want that box to have like a little triangle coming off of it. You'll do a before and after tag to make the parts of the triangle work the way they should using position absolute and position relative. Position relative on the parent box and then position absolute on the before and after pseudo selectors to kind of move it to the place it needs. And you can actually set like width and height properties to that pseudo selector. You generally don't want to use it too often because once you use it, you're kind of like limiting yourself to what you can do afterward. So like position absolute and position relative, before and after pseudo selectors, that's generally used as a last resort if that's the only thing that fits that criteria for that part of the page. Yeah, and I remember the first time I actually used one of them was I was trying to make it like a little like um, text box. You know, like when a character is speaking, like it has like the little yeah, the like, little speech bubble. Like half, yeah, the little speech bubble, the little like pointing thing. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. first time I ever I ever used one, and I remember it because I was like, it was for like one of the many iterations of my portfolio page, which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it was actually trying to do like a little bio about myself, which was a horrible idea. Now that I think about it. There's also transform rotate as well that usually comes in handy. If you want that text box, that chat little triangle to be 45 degree angle instead of like a traditional like straight down angle, you can do that property as well. Yeah. So, so, so those two properties for sure. As far as like a crash course, like if I was a new dev, I would feel I would feel like I know relatively enough now, right? We I'm just trying to like go list down everything we've covered so far because it's been a lot. So we've talked about so far about like how. To, 
how how people write styles. Obviously, the vanilla way because there's multiple ways, especially when you get into frameworks. <laughs> that gets a lot. Into yes, as well as as well as how selectors work. A little bit of specificity, which gets really weird. I I think one thing we forgot to cover in the section was how you can actually write your CSS in the browser itself using the developer tools. We kind of thought we kind of glossed over developer tools, how you can select and see, but you can actually also write your styles in there and then you can just copy and paste them into your style sheet, which is I think is the best way because you don't have to like switch back and forth, refresh, switch back and forth and refresh. It's funny you say that because I just had to do that today. <laughs> yeah, and it gets free, it gets annoying, especially if you're writing something that has like a um that's in a framework, like let's say you have a CSS uh, a JavaScript project and mm. it's TypeScript and that thing takes like 40 seconds to compile because yes, oh my God. your projects can actually get that big <laughs> and it takes 45 seconds or something or, or like a minute. That's the precise reason I had to do that today because I'm like, I have an Angular project and Angular is shipped with TypeScript and every time you change a style on the page, it recompiles everything. And if you're using a Windows um, app, it sometimes takes like five to 10 seconds depending on how big the application is and how you change the bundling. For if you, if you like actually do the pipeline process where you actually put it to a build or public folder, it takes like a minute sometimes. So what I do is sometimes I just modify like the styles on the page, like you said, and just write the styles right then and there. And I'm like, okay, this works. And I literally just copy it and just throw it right in my, my CSS file or SAS file. Yeah, so that's the best way to actually kind of write your styles out, especially because you get faster feedback, right? It's not like you're, you don't lose that focus or that like that momentum you develop. So that's one thing we forgot to mention, but I'm just going, still going down the mental list. We also covered a little bit on the box, on the box icing model, which you taught me a little bit because I didn't know that. And it helped when you, when you actually, especially for the people that, that have used like something like Photoshop or some sort of like design, like not design tool or yeah, design tool, uh, yeah. how the, um, what exactly that, that little line meant because I've always put it in there, but I never really took oh, the, the box time. To, border box. Yes. Took the time to actually like dig in deep and hey, this is exactly what it does. I throw that in every project. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like one of those defaults. We also covered a little bit on on like grid, a little bit on flexbox, which is the important parts of our positioning. I guess the one last important part that we haven't covered, it's resources. Where can we where can you go from here, right? because uh, it's a lot of information. It's a lot Right. And obviously you're not expected to load this up in your brain and know it right off the bat. I mean, if you're like a like a UI specialist, you probably will know this. But if you're just like a, a normal full stack dev, a lot of the times I personally don't have this memorized and I'll have to look it up. What are some good like resources, Vincent, that where I can actually go and reference this stuff? I did actually when I learned a lot of CSS stuff originally, because I, I just been doing C I feel like I've been doing CSS for like five or six years now. So it's kind of like I first started off using this site called DevTips. It's the guy that works at Google right now, Travis something. I forgot what his name. You know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I, I watched his YouTube channel. He went through like how floats work, how Flexbox works, how CSS grid works. And I'll put that in the show notes. And like that's one of the resources I use particularly that I found really helpful. And he was kind of like one of the best tutorials back in like 2015 and 16 for like the older tech. It might have changed since then, so I don't really know. I'm sure there's a lot of good courses online on Udemy and YouTube that I can look up as well. That's it for sure. I think we for, I think we forgot two other, well, we forgot three other topics, I believe. There's, I mean, it's already been like 40 minutes or 15 minutes of tired talking, but but we forgot transitions and animations, which we, that would probably be a whole different topic entirely. But there yes, is a lot of these things can be their own that, episodes. That, <laughs> that would take way too long. There's also SVGs, 
and different ways of applying styles to that. There's also HTML canvas. And I'm just going to like briefly just run through it really quickly. Like SVGs, you can have on the page in line, kind of like HTML elements. They get styled the same way. There is HTML canvas. So if you're working at like making your online video game, you can apply styles to like the thing that renders the scene itself, like size, how big it's going to be, which that that's really just another topic entirely. But the most important topic I feel like we've sort of missed, I don't know if you want to cover this here, is SAS. Do you want to cover that? Or do you think that I want to I would actually leave that for its own episode because you can get pretty weird because SAS especially is a, it's a quick overview. It adds a lot of like cool convenient stuff where you can actually have like functions that you make and you have a lot of a lot of good stuff that I personally never use. But hey, I know there's a lot of stuff that can help you write your styles faster and make it more reusable, especially when you throw in the concept of mixins. Oh yeah, and, you're right. That that would take a long time to explain. There's so many different rules and structures and design patterns that you could talk about. And I remember I remember when I first learned that it took me a long time to understand. Yes. The one thing is as as a junior, if you encounter SAS, the coolest thing about it is just the way you're able to like able to make little CSS components that you can kind of use all over the place. And it, it kind of follows the same mental structure and same mental model that you're kind of, that kind of like happens as you're writing your, your structure, your HTML, uh, which is, the, I guess it's the main benefit for me. I know there's other stuff in there, like mixins or like functions that I, I personally never used. I mean, I know they exist though. I was thinking of like other, other tools that you're talking about earlier about what would be helpful for learning like all the different principles of CSS. So I think we talked about some of them earlier. So one is Flexbox Froggy, which yes. is like a video um, game kind of where you are a little frog and you have to position yourself in different parts of the page. Oh, and then there's another one called CSS Grid Garden, which is made by the same authors. I don't know what the author is called, but it is like a, a game as well. And it like you have little plants in a garden and you have like water and you have weeds that are growing that are killing your plants and you're like i need to position the water and the plants away from the weeds and move the pesticide and like how do i put it on the page such that it's, it's in the right area and how do i select it so that's a really good one um i use that site every now and then probably every year or two just to refresh myself with css grade so and it's one of the best ways uh the w or sorry the mozilla developer network generally has some of the best resources out there if in case you want to know the exact rules for what css properties do and what they what, what things you should know about it a lot of times when i get stuck on like a css like layouts problem i'll just like kind of recognize what i have to put on there like and i'll actually look it up on stack overflow and just look up stack overflow and then like the css layout issue that i'm having whether it's like how do I resize this box with this size such that there's text that's reflowing outside the page? I don't know, just an example. But I think that's like all the stuff that we had for this topic, German. Do you think it's time for dessert or do you or you think we're good? Well, I wanted to bring one up, which is you reminded me of when you said the word garden, which is the classical example for CSS. It's CSS then garden, which just kind of provides you the, the structure and then you can come in and kind of write your own styles. And people, it's one of those things where like, hey, um, a cool, a really important thing about styling, and maybe not so much position, because position is a little bit coupled to st- to the way you write your your markup. But styling should not anyway in any way really be coupled to the structure of your page, right? So you can come in and write and write it and kind of like give it whatever design you want without having to change the the markup. So there's that one page where you can kind of see examples and kind of make your own as well which I think is a pretty cool way to learn CSS and kind of like practice selecting stuff. Some stuff in that website, I think there's a newer version because that one is not very, very friendly towards Flex, Flexbox and um, 
in CSS Grid because those things didn't exist when that first came out. But that's a cool thing to look into. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that, and that kind of blew 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 my mind away. Like you're just given like the same HTML on the page, and people are doing all sorts of crazy designs based on just the style on the page, and it kind of opens your mind up in terms of like what CSS CSS is actually capable of, which is a lot honestly getting good at css changes the whole user experience dynamic on a page and getting good at it is a highly sought skill for any front-end developer or even any full-stack developer because there always has to be a css expert in every every group and every team and a lot of times like i get shoved into that unfortunately but but in other places like you definitely there's an opportunity like where you can learn a lot and being an expert in this particularly is definitely really useful to know. Definitely. Right. So I'm actually really hungry now, man. It's time for dessert. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell can you tell the audience what dessert is? Definitely. For the ones who haven't joined us before, dessert time is a little segment where me and Vincent get to kind of like just go in little rants about our lives. It's like a little mini blog, if you want to consider it that way. So um I guess Vincent, you can go first and tell us what's been the sweetest thing in your life or whatever your dessert rant is. I feel like my mind is occupied on a lot of different things at any given point in time, but the uh, dessert that I want to focus on today is probably beyond fitness. I don't know if we're going to make a whole separate topic for this. Maybe we might, but I'll just cut it like short and sweet. So I've been on like a weight loss cycle for since January all the way up until June 13th, like five months. And I like dropped like 35 pounds. I don't think I said this in the previous episode because we skipped like two episodes. But anyways, now I'm like, back to bulk training where I'm trying to like actually put on mass now. I'm trying to go for just like straight muscle mass. And I've been going to the gym and have a personal trainer. That's like kind of teach me the ropes. I mean, I've, I, I just, I've, I've realized for the longest time that my form and like doing different things like pushups or squats or even like barbell rows have been actually off all my life. And that was kind of a realization that I've been doing it all wrong all these years. So it's it's been interesting um, the two weeks that I've like done this so far. What about you, German? So I've actually been fin- I've actually been reading a lot of books. So one of my goals right now is to be a little bit more not more productive, but manage my time better because I tend to be very very scattered brain and kind of like juggle like fifteen different things at the same time and things sometimes come crashing down. But a good book I kind of read a few years ago and I'm kind of rereading again is Deep Work by uh, Carl Newport, which is a good way. It, it provides a good framework on how. You should kind of like uh, oh, what you need to focus on, what's actually important for you to kind of grow in your career or in whatever you're trying to do. In this case, it's obviously in a, in a quick summary, it's just kind of like making the amount of shallow work, which shallow work is anything that doesn't really require that much brain power or like it's not like f- focal to your career growth or or getting things done. Try minimizing those things and kind of like focusing on deep work, things that require a lot of like things that require a lot of your brain power in a sense, a lot of your time. And it's what's gonna make you grow in your career. I guess that's kind of like my really short summary, which is probably not the best, but <laughs> I, I remember parts of it. I haven't read it, but I've seen synopsis of it. So the way I understand it is you've got all these like miniature tasks you have to do throughout the day, like I need to send emails to this guy, I need to go text my friend, you know, where we're gonna meet tonight. And you generally just wanna batch those all at the same time and get it over with as quickly as possible, or just delay it and put it to a future time. Like you shouldn't check your phone like every every hour right like when you're trying to do deep work you have to for instance programming right you have to be in a mindset and that mindset can last like three to four hours sometimes 
And that's when you're most productive is when you're so super focused on that one task and you can understand all the nuances and you kind of zone out and you're just coding and like getting those and doing that in like that long stretch of time makes you highly productive and you get a lot of things done. Like, like for me, like if I'm, if I'm not feeling into coding at that exact moment, I won't code. But like when I really feel like coding, I'll bash out a lot of stuff all of, like in a couple hours and like, Oh my god, you finished all this already. <laughs> but, but yeah. Same, same. It's just like and it's what's um it's the flow state. Whenever you can actually enter like a state of flow where you can actually just everything kind of comes naturally to you. Well, not naturally in a sense, but everything's kind of like everything flows, which I guess it's what it's called the flow state. <laughs> yeah. Cal Newport has written other good books, like uh So Good They Can't Ignore You, which that's a really good one too. Yeah, that one's next on my reading on my reading well, list. Well, once you read it, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think, I cool. think we're, we're done for today. Anything else you'd like to add before we close up? I know that. That's it. I mean, I hope you guys kind of like, uh, even if you're a back, if, even if you want to be a backend developer, at least learn the basics of CSS. That's just something we might take away. Learn how to position stuff at the bare minimum. The styles, for the most part, if something needs to look pretty, a uh, designer will give it to you. But just learn how to position stuff. Yeah, that's right. If, if you're using like a Figma or Sketch or whatever tools, you can actually like see the mock-up and then see the styles and the colors on the page too. And there's also lots of Chrome extensions you can download to see like what colors on, is on this page or what font. And that's a whole different <laughs> set of topics we could talk about. But yeah, thank you guys for, for listening to Code Chess and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for dining with us on Code Chefs. We hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, Check, please.